This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 235, and we are recording on June 9th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Welcome. Hello. That's all we've got. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it feels like a non-bantery intro because we right. are doing our anti-racist literature show today. Mm-hmm. So this show is in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. We all have so much work to do, especially us white folks and non-black folks. And we wanted to put together some resources to help y'all do the work along with us. And uh, before we get started, I think we both have some words about that. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought it would be good to start off with being clear about the difference between not being racist and being anti-racist. So not being racist is about not intentionally engaging in racist acts, but being anti-racist is about acknowledging and understanding the systemic nature of racism and working to change and challenge those systems. That's just like my quick, rough and ready understanding of it, but I'm going to leave a link in the show notes to a great discussion that unpacks that a bit more. And I want to thank the resources that are so many great resources online for unpacking all of that, which, you know, if you Google for five minutes, you'll find some, not even five minutes, like five seconds, you will find some, but we will, we will give you some starting points. And speaking of starting points, I just want to be super clear for myself and everyone that reading these books is great, but it's also just the start. Education should lead you to action. Anti-racism is a practice. So like to quote Miss Marvel, good is not a thing you are. It's a thing you do. Yeah. I think that what makes this moment to me anyway feel kind of different from the ones that have preceded it is that so many white people and non-black people of color are coming to personal realizations of the difference between not being racist and being actively anti-racist. That's mm. That feels like what the difference is for me. Because it's so, I mean, most of us are, you know, walk around not being racist consciously. Most of us are nice and kind to strangers and not intentionally discriminating, but not so many of us are actively working to be anti-racist. And I think that right now, so many white people are specifically are making the decision to do that work. So that's great. I feel like it's great. I'm very hopeful and working really hard to not feel cynical about about it, but I am I am pretty hopeful about where this is going to take us. So, I mean, I just second the things that Jen said, and I want to recommend that you go follow Brandon K. Good on Instagram. That's his handle. It's at Brandon K. Good. Um, he did a great IG live this morning about, it wasn't live, whatever, a video about how to be a good ally versus being an effective ally. And his whole point was basically, you know, when this is quote unquote over, like when this momentum of what's happening right now starts to peter out, what are you going to do after that? And I think it's important that we all have something that we are going to keep doing when we no longer feel the momentum of this moment personally affecting us. And I just want to speak to my crew, my crowd, which is 
suburban moms <laughs> out there. We all have an inner Karen. Like we are all so good at calling the manager. And there was a meme that was going around this week that was like, I just need all of the white ladies to hang on to this call the manager energy and direct it at mayors, governors, school boards, police. And that's what we need to do. So you know, don't wait for the internet to tell you when the next March is. Eventually, there won't be many that you can attend. Eventually, quarantine will be over and you're going to have to go back to work and you won't be able to attend it or whatever. But people in charge still need to be, you know, speak to the manager. And that this is our superpower, right? Like, this is the thing we are good at. So pick something, whether it's police reform or abolition, voter suppression, working to get rid of the cops that are in your kids' schools if there are. Are there Confederate monuments in your town that need to come down? pick something, put it in your passion planner, you know, as a to-do list item and do it. Like this is the thing suburban moms are good at. We are good at organizing. We are good at action items. We are good at making sure everyone is cared for. Just take all of your skills that you're using to care for your family and be good at your job and apply them to your community, your, your greater family. So like, don't let the momentum peter out in your own life. Bottle the things that you're feeling right now and use them in the future. Amen. That's my rant. <laughs> That's my rant. So say we all. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess we'll do our first sponsor yeah. <laughs> before we get started and then we, uh, we'll get started. Okay. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest-paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. All right, Jen, you go first. I'm sorry. I feel like I just said a lot. You did say a lot. It's good. It's good. These are things that need to be said. So I'm going to start off with a picture book. Ta-da! It is... <laughs> 
so cute. Oh, my God. When I saw this in the store, I was just like, I have to read it. And it was amazing. It's Not Quite Snow White by Ashley Franklin and illustrated by Ebony Glenn. And this is about Tamika, who is an African-American girl who loves musicals and wants to star as a princess someday. But she, as a little black girl, is told that she's too round, too brown, etc. to be Snow White in the school play. So with the help of her parents, she works through these aggressions and she triumphs. And I think this is a great book for those of you with little kids to start a conversation about race and body image bonus. And like, why do we believe that certain people have to look a certain way to be a princess or a power ranger or a Jedi or whatever the thing is that your kid is obsessed with? Like, think about what they're seeing and then talk to them about what it might look like if they saw something different and like give them different things to see. So, you know, I have a young niece and my sister-in-law and I have exchanged a lot of emails about resources. Literally every other book I have to suggest is for adults. Mm -hmm. But I didn't want to leave you with nothing. And also there is more. We have lots of great resources both on the site, but also since you are podcast listeners, I want to direct you to our Kidlit These Days podcast. I will leave a link in the show notes to the show specifically about, well, we have a couple actually. We have Mm -hmm. one about dismantling white privilege. We have one about resources for talking to your kids about race. We have lots of great content out there for you to help you talk to your children and preteens about this topic. Um, But again, the picture book I'm recommending right now is Not Quite Snow White by Ashley Franklin and Ebony Glenn. Okay, so the first book that I'm recommending is So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijeoma Oluo. And I'm recommending this one first because it is a, a great explainer of terms that I think people who are just getting started in figuring out what racial justice looks like or, you know, just getting started in reading these books or or listening to resources or whatever might not even understand what some of the terms mean that are commonly thrown around or might find some of them like immediately offensive or you might get really defensive when you hear them. And so, so you want to talk about race is about explaining all of those terms in very easy to understand ways with historical context and civil rights context. So she's talking about things like privilege, you know, like what is what even is that? What does that even look like in a white person's life? Intersectionality. What does that mean? You know, like you hear that a lot, especially if you're in social justice circles in general. But if you have not spent time in social justice circles and you encounter that term, you could very, you know, record scratch like what? I don't I don't know what that is. Microaggressions. That's another one that she talks about in the book that I think that people who aren't used to being in these conversations might hear and be like, oh, God, just get over it. Like it's micros in the name. It's not that big a deal, you know, but it is a big deal. And she's explaining in this book why experiencing microaggressions, it's not the size of the aggression, it's the frequency and how they happen every day, all day, and you can't escape it if you are black. And so the explanations of these very common terms to people who are used to these conversations, but for people who are not, I think is super helpful and a really great place to start. There's also a chapter about police brutality in here that is uh, obviously very relevant to what's happening in this moment. So if you've never involved yourself in any kind of activism when it comes to racial justice, then I think this is a, a one that you should probably start with. So that's So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijeoma Oluo. My next pick is, in a similar vein, a how-to. It is Me and White Supremacy by Layla F. Saad, 
I do want to say this is not a book specific to North America. She is an international person. She has lived lots of places in the world, both in the Western Hemisphere and lived in, and currently lives in the Middle East. But she's not an American. And she says in her introduction, like she's coming, she discusses her position and perspective. So this is a book that you should use in conjunction with others that are more specific to North American racism, which has its own special set of problems. But this is a super great thing in that it is a literal workbook. It started out as an Instagram hashtag project, and then she like self-published it as a workbook. And now it's this very nice, beautifully packaged, I hope she got lots of money for it book um, mm-hmm. that is very satisfying to hold. It's, it's like the exact right size and shape. I don't know. That is a thing in my head. Like I don't know why, but it is. And it's got explainers followed by journal prompts around common terminology in the fight for racial justice. And it's focusing on whiteness. So she herself is a black woman talking to white people and white passing people about white fragility, white privilege, tone policing, etc. And I've been working my way through it. I'm finding it super helpful in ways to frame these questions, both for myself and like for the family members I'm having conversations with, which is always so freaking awkward, (laughs) but so important. And this is one of those books that you can give to people who are like, I want to help, but I don't understand where to start. I don't know what to do. Like, here is your starting point. This is an actual workbook. You write it down in your journal. Like, you can talk about it with a book group or friend. This would be a great book to do Mm. with a white lady book group, like, for real. And yeah, it's just, it's very clear. It's very nicely laid out. The journal prompts are really helpful. And I think it is definitely a good tool to have in your arsenal. So again, that's Me and White Supremacy by Leila F. Saad. All right. So my next pick for you all is White Fragility. The subtitle is Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. And this is by Robin D'Angelo. And this book is singular in my list because it's the only it's the only book by a white person <laughs> that I'm recommending to you. But I do think that's important. So Robin D'Angelo is a white lady. She's an academic who I think now is at the University of Washington. And this is what her academic career is about. It's about studying white fragility and anti-racism work. And I do think that it is important for white people to do some heavy lifting in these conversations and in this kind of activism. And it's a fine line to tread between like stealing the mic from somebody who should have it and carrying your fair share of the load. Like that's kind of Mm. more advanced kind of stuff to navigate. But it has to start with the examination of white defensiveness when it comes to conversations about race. And I picked this one especially because, you know, the the Central Park Karen thing that happened a couple of weeks ago, right after George Floyd was murdered. I don't remember her name. I've just been calling her Central Park Karen. It is Amy something, whatever. That woman who called the cops on that black man in Central Park for bird watching. When that happened, so many... I was just really surprised by how many white women in my social media circles were like, oh, I see exactly what she's doing. Like she was weaponizing her fear, Mm -hmm. quote unquote. It wasn't real. She was pretending to be afraid and using it as a weapon in order to punish this black man for being in a space she didn't want him to be in. And so many white people I saw were like, right, like that's exactly like it's a it's a tool that they use. It's not something that she was unconsciously doing. She wasn't actually scared of him. She was pretending to be scared of him. And so that idea of of whiteness being, um, of white people's fear and feelings and tears being a weapon, I think is something that really like has to be dismantled. And this book is a great place to start because 
any person of color will tell you in a conversation with a white person about race, so often it becomes about the white person's feelings about that conversation, not about the thing you're talking about. It'll be defensiveness. It'll be, but I'm not racist. It'll be, you know, I have a black friend, whatever, like, or they will cry or they will tell you the tone policing, right? They'll tell you that you're, you're, if you just worded that in a nicer way, I would listen. If you were just more polite, your message would get out to more people. The idea that the fragility of a white person's ego is more important than justice for black people and people of color is so foundational to the way that white supremacy functions here. And I assume other places, but I would not be in other places. So this is my experience. And that's what this book is about. It's about why as white people, when someone says to you, hey, that was racist, or like this thing is racist, or this, this company that you like is racist, the knee-jerk reaction is so often defensiveness and anger. And why, why that is? Because we have been taught to be colorblind. And we have been taught that white people's feelings are supreme over almost everything else. And I'm sure like even hearing me say this, some of you listening might be like, oh, God, shut up. You know, like you can feel that automatic, like, uncomfortable. I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to. And there are reasons for that. There are very specific reasons for that. And she also has useful like definitions in this book, like the the difference between prejudice, discrimination and racism. We use those terms interchangeably often, but they are not interchangeable. They have very distinct meanings. And understanding the difference between them can help a white person understand what version of that they are practicing practicing in that moment in an interaction with a black person or a person of color. And even if you feel like you've never felt defensive in a conversation about race. <laughs> right. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. <laughs> and you know it's out. You know people are out there. I know. It's true. It's true. Um, even if you're like, that's not me. Like, I listen. I'm a great listener. I'm an ally. I do this way. Whatever. Like, sh- okay. Like, I'm, I don't want to discount anybody's feelings about themselves. But I would read it anyway. <laughs> I'm just going to say maybe read it anyway. Well, so- <laughs> yeah, like I think the the thing to remember here is that I think even as a white person talking to other white people about race can see that defensiveness come into mm-hmm. play. And I think it's lesser, certainly, to be, you know, called out by a white person than it is to be called out by a black or a brown person. But it's still there. And like these are the you know, this is the kind of book that you can use to have those weird conversations with your relatives because you will understand mm-hmm. where they're coming from, like the foundation of those feelings. Yeah. And I also think it's a good one to give. Like if your white relatives are open or like mm-hmm. are curious and want to start having or be educated about this, like it's a good starting place because I'm like, I hate to say it, but it's true. A, a book about this from a white person is often more readily received by yeah. other white people because I mean, for obvious reasons. I don't want to get away. <laughs> so anyway, go read it. That's White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism by Robin D'Angelo. Nice. All right. So let's see. My next pick is The Fire This Time, which is edited by Jasmine Ward. And, you know, I when I think about anti-racist literature and like the different sort of on-ramps, I guess is how I want to call it. It feels like there's Again, different ways that you that people are looking to approach it. So, you know, for some people, like they really want like a how to or like a set of definitions, which is great. Like those are important things. But I think for others, you might need a like to see how it's affecting people personally. Like I think personal stories, right? We know this. Like this is a marketing truth even that personal stories are what is compelling to people. And so I picked this collection in part because of that. It was written and put together in response to The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin, which you should absolutely also read. And this is essays, there's poems, there's letters. 
from a variety of Black and brown voices on the lived realities of race in America. So, you know, there's this amazing letter, for example, from Daniel Jose Older to, like, his future child, thinking about, you know, what it means to grow up as a mixed-race person. This child will grow up as a mixed-race person in America. There is, you know, a wonderful piece by Claudia Rankin. Mitchell S. Jackson, who's an amazing writer, both of fiction and nonfiction, is in here. I just like the list just goes on and on. There's just so many powerful, amazing voices. Edwidge Danticott, like Kesey Lyman, like, ah, I just, so many good people. And they all have their own experiences. You know, they're talking about running while Black. They're talking about microaggressions. They're talking about, you know, conversations with white people. They're talking about so many different things. They're talking about history. They're talking about the present day. And I think that it is both educational and very personal. And that can be really powerful for people who are trying to, like, understand the impact on the individual, as well as the systemic issues. Um, So this also can serve as a jumping off point for authors that you should be reading, both for further education and because their books are freaking amazing. (laughs) So many of them write amazing fiction as well as really amazing nonfiction. Um, And so, yeah, so I think this is a great tool to have both because, I mean, these are stories that need to be told. They're stories that are great to share to people who are like, okay, but is it really that bad? Like, yes, it's that bad. Here are some stories about what it's like. And yeah, and it will introduce you to authors you absolutely should be reading. So again, that is The Fire This Time, edited by Jasmine Ward. Co-sign. Okay, my next pick is How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. I actually, I'm going to honorable mention his other book later in the show, but for now we're going to talk about this one. So How to Be an Anti-Racist, I actually am making my book club read right now. Um, and it is so informative. This is, it's very similar to So You Want to Talk About Race in as much as it's defining terms. But this is very specifically, this is not about like social justice ideas, right? Like microaggressions can apply to anyone. And privilege, like that's such a broad term. How to be an anti-racist is very drilled in on like how to stop being anti-Black and how, as opposed to, uh, you know, more general Uh, how to be anti-racist, even though that's in the title. So it's very specific, very focused. It also has a super uh, helpful introduction that is like a history of racism and uh, not so much modern racism, but how the idea of race as a thing even got started. Turns out it was Portugal. (laughs) I didn't know. Like I had no idea. And it's a very, it's brief, but it's so eye-opening. Like where did we even get the idea that people with different skin colors were different quote-unquote races. Like, where did that come from? Well, it came from Portugal in the 1500s as they were starting their slave trade. And, you know, like, the genetic differences are just not there. Like, there's a tidbit in that introduction that really stuck with me, that there's, there's more genetic variation between Black people from different parts of Africa than there are between Black people from Africa and white Europeans. Like, it's just so, it's so eye-opening and interesting. And so he goes, he moves on from like a history, also a defining of terms like Jen talked talked about at the beginning of the show about the difference between being not racist versus being anti-racist and how anti-racism is really the goal uh, into the different aspects of black life that racism is showing up in. So like there is an, uh, an essay about culture. There's an essay about biological racism and the ways in which, you know, some 
people who are trying to be like not racist will say stuff like, well, black people, they're just such amazing natural athletes. When in reality, that is just biological racism because that's not true because there is not this huge genetic disparity between any person of any race and another. Like there is just almost none, except the ones we've chosen to focus on. So it's not just different ways that racism shows up in a black person's life, but also the ways that you, as a person who is not black, can change the way that you're thinking and change the things that you're saying and pursue specific policies that dismantle those racist thoughts, ideas, setups. And so he's really focusing in this, not so much like changing hearts and minds, although hopefully that, is, that also happens, but in like changing racist policies that exist specifically to encourage white supremacy. And so it's, you know, even for somebody who has been in, you know, like in these conversations and kind of in this water for several years, there, there are things in this book that I just had not thought about or like, oh, because, you know, I mean, I'm not black. And that's another thing I want to point out is how to be an anti-racist, even if you are not a white person, if you're not black, that like you should still read it. You know, we have our own internalized anti-blackness, especially people from Asian cultures. I said this at like the last show when we were talking about this. But the ways that we talk about our skin tone, you know, it, it's it's so rooted in anti-blackness. Anyway, that was a side rant. <laughs> Welcome to Get Booked. I know. <laughs> Asian people, we're complicit. Da, 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 da. Anyway, yeah. So the reason why I picked this for my book club specifically to read it, you know, my book club is, it's not entirely white, but there are no black people in my book club. It's like five or six women. We are all middle class, suburban, progressives. And very well-meaning, you know, but not all of us have been doing anti-racist work. And a lot of them were asking me, like, where to start. And I was like, well, if everybody's asking the same question, I think this is the answer, right? Because this is not just about you're thinking about this the wrong way, but it's also about you're voting about this the wrong way. And mm -hmm. you need to be writing letters about this in this way, addressing this specific thing. And it's not like telling you it's not a checklist or, or anything like that, but it is it is a mindset shift away from being a passive, nice white person to being an active person who is making the world better. That difference is really important. So that's How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. Let's do another sponsor. All right. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. At she wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now, he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal, join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. 
Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine, partying hard is what it takes, but with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the critic Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for We Deserve Monuments, and We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023, so suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. I do want to co-sign that, like, yeah, having been swimming in the waters of social justice for some time, like, there is always more work to do. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate the opportunity to do the work. And also, I'm a little bit like, ugh, I like, you know. It's like, well, I, I I have so much catching up to do is the mm. feeling. But that's okay. <laughs> that's what that's what we do. Like we catch up and we keep going. We put it in our planners. We do. So that we don't have to catch up. <laughs> put it in your Things 3 app, y'all. Put it in there. <laughs> yeah. So the next book that I want to recommend, I think is particularly useful to understanding many of the conversations that are happening right now. It's Who Do You Serve? Who Do You Protect? Police Violence and Resistance in the United States. It's edited by Maya Shenwar, Joe Makare, and Alana Yulan Price. And this is an essay collection on policing in America, both exploring and interrogating the systemic abuses and diving into visions for what it could look like. So you're, we're seeing a lot right now about, like, don't call the cops, defund the police. There's mm. Campaign Zero. There's all of these different angles specifically talking about policing in America. And this book is like, if you do not understand some of these things or you're like, how can we literally not have police? Like, mm. I feel like I've had that conversation with more than one person. This is the book that you want. I'm going to mention that it is free in ebook from the publisher Haymarket Books until June 12th. So you still have a little time or you could give them some money for publishing great books like, you know, whatever. Um, but I'm going to leave the link for that in the show notes. But this is full of in-depth reporting by a variety of journalists and people with all of the stats and facts and figures that you could possibly want, both to understand yourself and as ammunition for the conversations that you are hopefully going to be having with the people in your lives about this. I'm finding it really readable. I was very nervous picking this up because sometimes when things are very academic, I struggle. And sometimes when things are very heavy, I struggle <laughs> and like all of those things, you know, could be true. But uh, I, I am I am really fine. I mean, it's it is heavy. Let me let us not be, you know, wrong about that. Like it is real heavy. The information in here. I just finished an essay about this really intense dive into the Chicago Police Department in particular that is like it's rough but this is real this is our this is reality and we don't know I didn't know these things I knew that there was a problem but I did not understand the extent of the problem or the various ways that it has been showing up and this book is so good at like making these compelling arguments about where policing has gone wrong and why do we even need this particular system in the first place? There are other alternatives, which I think a lot of us forget because this is a system that we've grown up with, right? Mm -hmm. And it's just like we take for granted that you have to have 
unarmed police force. But that is actually not necessarily true. That it might not be something that we need. There might be, in fact, I believe that there are better solutions out there than the one we have right now. And it's not going to disappear overnight, but there are steps that we can take. There are things we can understand. There's research we can read and conversations that we can have about how to change and potentially abolish these systems that are so violent and wreaking such havoc on communities of color in America. Again, that is Who Do You Serve? Who Do You Protect? Edited by Maya Shenwar, Joe Makare, and Alana Yulan Price. I kind of, and I just want to like hang a lantern on this one because I feel like when people hear defund the police, they just shut down, like Mm -hmm. just automatic removal from. And I want to tell y'all, my brother-in-law, who I love and deeply and is like a wonderful person, is a police officer. And I have had a lot of knee-jerk like, ugh, you know, to the idea of defunding the police because I don't want anything to happen to him, you know? And I think that Mm -hmm. a lot of people are in that kind of same position. But if I ask him, what do you think about taking some money out of the police budget and putting it towards social workers who are trained to deal with the people who are having, you know, mental illness issues on the street or who are, you know, have overdosed on the street, all these things that he spends so much of his day dealing with that he's not qualified to do. And he knows and will admit he is absolutely in favor of that. So I don't want people to think that it's not possible or that, you know, that it's a terrible idea. Like, have some curiosity about it is, I think, what I want to encourage people to do. Have some curiosity about the idea of whether or not dumping all of this money into an armed police force is really the best thing for the police or anyone else, because most of the time it's not. He is not trained to do a lot of the things he has to do all day, you know, and that's not good for anyone. Yeah, that's actually a point I wanted to make and forgot. So thank you for reminding me (laughs) that, you know, a lot of the focus in these conversations is about specific officers, Mm -hmm. which like, yes, there are very specific officers involved in things. Often they are repeat offenders, which the book gets into in really useful ways, but also like the system in which they are operating props up offenders and repeat offenders and also does not offer adequate training Mm -hmm. or, you know, support for them to do things like understand how to approach a mentally ill person who may become violent, how to de-escalate, you know, domestic violence situations so that you never have to reach for a weapon. Like they don't, they're not getting the training or education that would be required to handle these situations in nonviolent ways a lot of the time. And so we are asking them to fill roles that they are not trained or set up for. And that is, again, a systemic issue that leads to things like abuses of power and an opportunity for violence by people who are looking to take that opportunity. So it's not just about like, oh, yeah, we need to get rid of the racist cops. Like, no, the no. system, <laughs> right. the system is set up in such a way that it, it allows for all of these things to happen. So we need to look at the system is what we need to do. Yeah. And I don't want to make it sound like the feelings of the police are the thing that need to be centered here. No, because that's not that's not true. <laughs> um, but it is a point that I think is useful, especially when you're talking to people who are automatically opposed to changing anything about the police force. It's a useful point that the way things are set up now is not good for them either. It's just not. It's not good for anybody. It's not good for anyone. Anyone. Okay. Sorry. That was like a whole, I'm just doing side rants here today. All day. <laughs> <laughs> okay. My next book. <laughs> uh, my next book is Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women That a Movement Forgot by Mickey Kendall. 
this is such a good, I love this so much. Okay, so white feminism is a thing. Like, we all know that white feminism is a thing. And it became, the conversations about the way that the feminist movement has left behind women of color became, I think, really big when Lean In came out. Uh, That Sheryl Sandberg book about, you know, like, how to be rich and white and have a good job, basically. And Mickey Kendall is using this book to take that conversation way further. Like, all the ways in which feminism as a mainstream movement has left behind women of color and black women specifically. And so she talks about a lot of issues that are very important to the black community and to black women specifically, including like food insecurity, living wages, access to medical care, access to a quality education that's free of like violent police in it. These things that affect black women and their families every day, that modern feminism is like too busy talking about leaning in to really concern itself with, right? And so the big mainstream conversations that are happening in a lot of feminist spaces, especially the really powerful ones, the ones with big voices, the ones with big platforms, really don't have anything to do with like a large percentage of the women in this country. And you can't have an effective feminist movement that leaves behind so many people who who it's supposed to apply to and not just leaves behind, but like actively works to oppress. And there's a section in one of the first essays in the book that I had never considered that really has kind of stuck with me about uh, she's talking about the sexualization of black girls bodies and how that happens so early and the ways that white women use their privilege to dress up like you know, people who they consider like exotic, like you'll see all those, you know, pretty white girls in Coachella wearing Indian headdresses, or they'll dress up like geishas or whatever. And it's just because like, they want to feel sexy and exotic and powerful and all these kinds of things. And I know that that's not right. Like it's icky and gross. And please don't do that. But I had never made the connection between that between white women doing culturally appropriative costumes, and the rape statistics for those groups of people. Because white women, when you do that, you're participating in the sexualization and dehumanization of those populations. Like there's a reason why indigenous women have, or their rape statistics are so much higher than white women's. And it's partially because of that, you know, and like the ways in which white women will not be, hold themselves accountable to oppressing women of other races is what this book is pointing out. And I know that some of y'all are, are, are doing that white fragility thing. They're like, oh, God, I don't do that. Stop it. OK, like, just read it. Right. You know, I think that if you consider yourself a feminist, if you've been giving money to plan, you know, you got a Planned Parenthood sticker on the back of your car like I do, then you should definitely be thinking about these things and read this book because there are so many ways that feminism in its well-meaningness is just trampling over the people that it, it most stridently purports to protect and stand for, right? So stop doing that. (laughs) Okay, so that's (laughs) Feminism by Mickey Kendall. My next pick is another essay collection. It is Well-Read Black Girl, edited by Glory Edom. And this, again, is because I think that personal narratives are incredibly powerful. And this collection specifically are essays and conversations on the importance of finding yourself represented in media. And they are by these essays and conversations are by black women. And when I was thinking about putting together this show, I was thinking about like what conversations we've had as an organization and as, you know, content creators. And people will still argue with us on the internet about the importance of highlighting books (laughs) written by members of marginalized communities, which like 
It just, I mean, or they'll be like, well, we don't have that problem anymore. Like, look how many books are coming out. And it's like, oh, this is just a drop in the vast bucket, you know? Yeah, like the publishing paid me hashtag. Yikes. Yeah, right. So, yeah, exactly. It is really, we have, we have so much farther to go. And this collection gives a personal context to the importance of seeing yourself and the ways in which you see yourself in the media. And it is so powerful. It is also just fascinating to think about like, like it is like a really great book club in a way because you get to hear these thinkers and authors and writers and actors and creators talking about the books that they read and how they felt and thought about them when they read them, especially when they were younger. And, you know, there some of them are so funny, as well as heartbreaking, like Gaburi Sadibi's, you know, piece in this is just... Oh, wow. It's like, it's amazing. I like laughed and also was crying. Like that's, it's just really amazing. And N.K. Jemison talking about like fantasy and, you know, Star Trek and futures and past. Like, where do you find yourself as a Black woman in those narratives? Like the answer is almost nowhere. And, you know, Nicole Dennis Ben talking about growing up in Jamaica, but still reading only books by white people and how you can be surrounded by, you know, black people and still never see yourself represented in the media and only write and think that the only things that are written and that should be written are about white people. Like it is a trip. And it's so important, I think, for us to understand these perspectives and to think about like, you know, if you're a kid in the American school system and the only book by a black person that you're assigned is about the black experience of slavery, like, mm. what does that tell you about black characters? Let's think about it for a minute. And so, yeah, this is an amazing collection. I highly recommend reading it. It's also got a ton of great reading suggestions because obviously, like, well-read black girl, what more? What I mean, what else would you expect? Like, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> so there's reading lists in here. And again, these are all authors whose work you should absolutely be following because they're amazing writers and are creating amazing content. So again, that's Well Read Black Girl, edited by Glory Edom. All right. So my last pick is The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness by Michelle Alexander. I picked this because I wanted to have a book on this list that speaks to the specific present moment about police brutality and incarceration and over-policing of the Black community. So this book, as you can tell from the title, is about the through line from slavery to Reconstruction to Jim Crow to mass incarceration. And the point is that mass incarceration, it, by which I mean the fact that the number of Black people in prison is three times higher than their percentage of the general population, right? So they are massively overrepresented in prisons and jails. And that's not an accident, which is kind of the thesis of the book. The idea that um, you know, these neighborhoods are just poor and so they're crime rated. And so of course they end up in jail. Like it's not an accident though. The bills and laws that made certain things illegal, that felonized certain crimes were made on purpose to get Black people in jail. And once they are out of jail, there are further laws and bills and policies that are designed to keep them disenfranchised. So like in a lot of states, felons can't vote. In a lot of states, felons are denied access to public housing or 
a lot of different social safety nets that would get them back into the community in a healthy and restorative way. So the prison system, which likes to bill itself as like redemptive and you serve your time and you get out and then you make something of yourself. Like not only is it not that, it's on purpose. It's it's not that on purpose. And the 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 system of the the pris- of um, prisons and jails in the US and like cash bail the way that public defenders are overworked and underpaid, like all of these things aren't accidents. And they're very much designed and were designed in the 60s and 70s on purpose when Jim Crow started to be dismantled to maintain the status quo of Jim Crow in a de facto way, even if it wasn't du jour, right? So like the law is not Jim Crow. But in fact, the Black community is still suffering from those oppressive ideas and policies because, you know, white lawmakers didn't want to let go of that because the more Black people who vote, more often those people will be voted out, right? And so it's not an accident, as I said. And if you are wondering, like, why are so many police in these communities to begin with? Like, why is it so many cops to like not, it doesn't make sense with the size of that neighborhood. Or you're catching all of these police officers on video now doing terrible things when like sometimes you have to wonder why did they pull them over to begin with? Like so many times there's no answer. And this is the answer. The answer is that stuffing prisons with members of the black community so that they can't vote or have access to any social programs when they get out is the goal. Like that is the point. That's the whole point. And maybe these individual police officers aren't doing that consciously, but they're participating in this system that was designed to make that happen. So that is The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Woo! (laughs) It's real. Okay, so I'm just going to take a minute. Our current focus, for obvious reasons, is on Black communities who are being impacted both by police shootings and by COVID in outsized ways. The The stats are there. Like, look it up. It's really real. I also wanted to take a moment to talk about two other communities of color who have been deeply affected by the COVID crisis, and that is the Native American community and the Asian American community. Native Americans have been incredibly hard hit in their communities because of systemic segregation, underfunding of infrastructure, and other long-term issues of racism. And David Troyer's Heartbeat of Wounded Knee will help you understand why and how. This is a really accessible really important work of history that I am so glad I took, you know, the length of time it took to read through it. It was not a quick read and it shouldn't be. There's a lot to absorb here. There's a lot of really important historical and present policy information that is just, I think, crucial to understanding the issues that the Native American community are facing today. And the Asian American community and its members have been violently attacked because of racism attached to the COVID crisis. And that is just the latest assault in a long history of othering. And so I want to recommend The Making of Asian America by Erica Lee. It's an important book in acknowledging the importance of Asian Americans in the history of the United States and detailing the ways in which systemic racism has shaped their existence today. So, you know, there's always more to learn. There's (laughs) always more work to do like we've got we got a lot to do but that's okay like you start in one place and then you keep going I also have an honorable mention (laughs) I wanted to also recommend Stamped from the Beginning by Ibram X. Kendi and I didn't want to recommend like two books by the same person but this is a super important one and I'm mentioning it especially because there's a YA version called Stamped that Jason Reynolds helped write and because 
the um, audiobook of Stamp from the Beginning, the adult version of it, is free right now on Spotify. It's a chunker. It's like 19 hours, <laughs> but it is well worth it. And it is a definitive history of racist ideas in America. That's the subtitle. So if you're wondering, like, how did we even get here? What is the, you know, kind of through line from enslavement of kidnapped people that were brought here to now a generation of people who feel like they have to be colorblind? Like, how did we get from that point to this point? And what do those things have in common? Because they have a lot in common. As well-meaning as the, you know, the idea of being colorblind is, it's actually very harmful. And so if you are, you know, wondering how that has evolved over time, uh, how explicit enslavement changed to implicit racism and participation in a racist system, even unconsciously, then this is the this is definitely the one that you need to pick up. Like I said, it's real hefty. It's like 600 pages, 19 hours on audio, but definitely well worth it. So that's my that's my honorable mention. And there is, as I said, a YA version. One more bonus while we're talking <laughs> about Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, he put together a really fantastic anti-racist reading list last year for the New York Times. And like, you know, we've given you some options. He gives you many options as well. I'll link to that in the show notes. It is behind a pay- paywall, but hopefully you can find somebody to PDF it for you. Okay, that's our show. And now, now, now I'm really done. <laughs> and now I am made of jelly and have no bones. <laughs> Exhausted. Okay. You can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. Jen, where can the people find you? You can find me mostly on Instagram right now as I am Jen IRL. And that's spelled I-A-M-J-E-N-N-I-R-L. And I just want to drop a quick, like, I don't know, note that I've seen that sometimes people are trying to reach out to me through my DMs on Instagram, but my DMs are mostly closed. So if you have like feedback or comments or whatever, send them to the Get Booked email address, which is getbooked at bookwrite.com. Both of us check that email address, so we will absolutely see it. And we are open to all of your thoughts, all of your recommendations. If you have more recommendations you want us to include on the feedback section of our next show, please do that. Thank you to our sponsors, and we will be back next week. Next week.